Thank you for your warm welcome. I think since I arrived in the building, I've been prayed for like 10 times. That's a good sign. A healthy church is a church that prays. And uh, I saw that right here. Uh, we have a special connection with uh, this Harvest Church here in Ottawa. Um, since I arrived, I recognize many uh, faces. But the first time me and my wife went to Harvest You in 2015. We were invited to go and have dinner at John McMullen's house, if you, some of you know him, is one of the elders in Harvest Oakville. And um, guess who was there? Ray and a full team of Harvest Ottawa here uh, that was there in his living room. We just were praying together in John's living room and Ray was on his knees. You know, Ray is really passionate. I love this guy and we have a, a same heart of seeing discipleship being made for the glory of God. Um, and we went for a vision night. You had a vision night in the uh, Holiday Inn here in Ottawa. We were there, and we were there at the launching of this church. So we are so encouraged by your church. Just know that what God is doing right here in Ottawa is really encouraging for us for the future in Quebec. So thank you. Thank you for your prayer. Thank you for continuing to pray for the work in Quebec because we need the Lord so much. So uh, thank you, Curtis, for the introduction, and thank you for having me this morning. Now, if you have a Bible, open it in the book of James, chapter 1. This morning I have uh, a, a message that I think will um, make a lot of people think. While I was studying this passage, I was just uh, challenged myself, and I hope and I pray that it will be the case for many of you in this place this morning. I think the Lord is here with us. God is omnipresent. The Bible tells us that He is everywhere all the time. And He is here with us this morning. So, church, do you come here with a heart that is expectant to meet with God? You can come with your notebook. And you can come with your pencil. And you can come taking notes and listening to a teaching or listening to an exposition of the Word of God. But if you are not coming in this place to meet with God... We need to correct that and say, I'm not just listening. I'm not just learning things. I come to have a communion with the living God. And God is in this place right now. And God wants to speak to you and wants to speak to me. So let's, uh, we'll just pray together. Before that, uh, I see the ushers with the Bible in his hand. If someone has no Bible, uh, please just raise your hand and uh, you will receive a Bible this morning to be able to follow with us. Uh, thank you also for uh, accepting a French guy coming to preach in English in your church. So I apologize already for the words that will sound weird. Um, maybe just come to me afterwards saying, why did you say a tree instead of three? And uh, that kind of thing. Okay, desert and desert. It's really hard for me. So I apologize in advance for that. Uh, we are not able to do anything on our own. So let's just pray together as we begin. Please bow our head with me. Father, Father, I'm so weak. I come in this place this morning and I need to preach your word in another language to people that is here, eager to hear you speak to them. Please come, make me disappear behind your word. Appear in this place and, and change our hearts. We need you. Holy Spirit, the word, just a word on the pages. If you're not here, take them and act in our heart. So I pray that we will just be so expectant of you. I pray for faith in this place. I pray for faith to believe that you are here 
That it's not the word of a man that is spoken this morning, but it's the very word of God. Faith to believe that it's not over the struggles, the challenges in our lives. That you are still with us, wanting to help us, to assist us, to sustain us through all of this. So I pray for a miracle in this place. Heart change. Lives change for your glory. Please, Father, receive much glory in this place today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 1. We will read this morning through verse 13 to 18. So you can keep uh, your Bible open to James 1. We won't go uh, at many other places in the Bible this morning. We just want to look at this text. But if I was to start my uh, sermon this morning by asking you some question, and maybe just answer in your heart, but if I ask you in your mind, I wonder how many of you will say yes. How many of you sinned during this past week? Uh, no, don't. Oh, you're so honest. So honest. You, you raise your hand and all of this. Do it in your heart. I don't really want to know it, but just for you to answer it. If I ask you how many of you sinned even yesterday, I wonder how many people will lift their hands or say me. How many of you sinned since this very morning? If you have a family, maybe in the car coming here. The thing is that I know that probably all of us will have raised our hand at some point, at some of those questions, or, or maybe if you're like me, at every one of those questions. Sin. Is always there tempting us. And, and I don't know for you, but are you not tired and, and sick of that temptation that is always like grabbing after you and wanting to separate you from your God and create a distance between you and your Lord? This morning we are going to look at a text that is addressing that. But what if I ask, whoever is sick and tired of, of the temptation to sin in their life, raise your hand. I wonder how many of you will raise his hand. Saying there's that struggle that is always there. Or, or maybe you look at your life or, or maybe some of the churches are maybe more holy than others. But when you look at your life and, and you talk with people and you think some things and, and at some point you're just like, I just did that again. I thought I was over with this. Sin and temptation isn't always, uh, sometimes it's very discouraging when you think about that. I've been a Christian for so many years and I still struggle with sin. What is my problem? Why is it so hard? The battle is real, the pain is deep. But the thing is that we are not without help. And this morning's message, you see this on the screen, it's overcoming temptation. Because the truth is that it is truly possible to overcome temptation in our lives. Isn't it already a relief just to hear that truth? It's possible. It's possible. If you just write one thing from the sermon this morning, if you take some notes and you want to write only one thing, you need to write this. You can overcome temptation. You truly can. And it's right here in the text in front of us. So let's dive right in and let our soul be encouraged in the Lord as we do so. In James 1, verse 13 to 15, as I was studying that passage, my own soul was so encouraged, so encouraged to know that I'm not without help. 
I can overcome temptation. It's so hard, and I struggle with sin every day, but it's possible. So, first of all, we'll begin by the beginning in verse 13. The first thing I want you to understand is that if we want to overcome temptation, the first thing we need to know is that we need to not trust our heart. That doesn't sound like what the world is telling us right now. In every movies, in every songs that we hear on the radio is trust your heart, follow your heart. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. The first thing you need to know if you want to overcome temptation is to not trust your heart. Verse 13, read with me. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted... And okay, we need to stop right now <laughs> already because there's a little word in this sentence that the Holy Spirit inspired and wanted that to be right there. And it's so important, the word when. We read this, let no one say when he is tempted. The thing is that it's not a question of if you will be tempted. It's a question of when. It's not, a, it's not for those weak Christians, you know? Oh, those weak Christians are tempted all the time. I don't. What, what is temptation? I don't know that. Those weak Christians. It's a when, not an if. We will all be tempted. Thomas Brooke was a, a famous Puritan in the 1500. He said, God had only one son without corruption, but none without temptation. What does that mean? The little word when right here. That says that we will all face temptation. Means that you should be sitting really tight on your seat right now. Because all the things that will come after this sentence concerns you and me. If we will all be tempted, the explanation or the rest of this text that that tells us how to overcome temptation is for all of us right now. So we need to open our ears. We need to open our hearts and say, God, talk to me. I need this. I need this. So let's read again verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. One thing that happens when you walk through trials and temptation, one of the first things that our evil arts does when we go through that, it's to accuse God for our evil desires and sin. It's to tell God that it's his fault. And James says here, don't accuse God for your desire to sin. It's not him. The problem is not him. He cannot be tempted with evil. That means God is untemptable. He cannot be tempted with evil. Sin holds no attraction to him as it does to us. Because God is utterly pure. There is nothing in God that can push him to bite the bait of temptation. There's absolutely no evil inside of him. And he continued by saying that God cannot, he, he himself tempts no one. So he cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself tempts no one. That means that God will never, ever tempt any one of us to evil. Why? Because he is untemptable and there's nothing evil inside of him. If God tempts us to sin, it will be sin. And sins. Sin has no hold on him. He cannot tempt us to do evil. That's very simple, but that's very powerful for us because we can never in any circumstances, and that's what the world's doing all the time. And to be honest, many Christians, it's God's fault. Honestly, what is the first thing we hear when we talk about the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden? 
Every time I talk, about that, I talk about that story to anyone, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, it's God's fault. If God knew that they were to bite that fruit, if God knew that they were going to sin, why did he put that tree in the garden? You heard that, yeah? Many people say that, but it's a wrong question. And it's a very wrong accusation. The question we should be asking is, why did Adam sin? Why did he disobey to God? God created this all beautiful world for Adam and Eve to enjoy it and to live in it and to, to just taste all those fruit. He gave them everything. But he said, this tree is my tree. You see, three, three, three. You understand the tree. <laughs> he said, this tree is my tree. You don't touch it. If you touch that tree, you will die. He touched it. Don't accuse God for your sin. He did nothing wrong in here. But we are like that so often. You know, it's not my fault, mom. If I stole money from your wallet, you left it open on the counter. It's not, it's not my fault, spouse, if I snapped at you, if I lost it at you, because you were not acting like I wanted you to act. It's your fault. It's your fault, God. It's your fault if I cheated on my tax report because you didn't give me a good job enough. It's your fault, God, if I struggle so much with that sin because you chose to make me being born in that family. It's your fault, God. James says, don't do that. You see how wrong it is. Don't pick the wrong fight. Don't fight the wrong enemy. It's not God. If you don't understand that, you will not be able to overcome temptation because you will fight the wrong enemy. Don't say that. Don't turn against God. James says instead, look at verse 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Let's start with that. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the problem is not God. The problem comes from elsewhere. Here in the text, when you read the, the book of James, you see the word temptation and trials coming so often. And in Greek, it's the same word. You have trial and temptation. And here the translator chose to put translation, uh, to put temptation instead of trials because James uh, goes from external circumstances, external oppression, external uh, trials to internal temptation to sin. So, from circumstance around you to evil from inside. So in the context, it's because more, most often temptation is like trials, best, best friends. is always there. When you go through trials, when you go to difficult time in your life, when there's so much things that are not going well in your life, temptation is so strong. You are tempted so much to do things on your own. You're tempted so much to take the easy solutions or things like that. So temptation is so, so, um, so much there when you are going through hard circumstances. But here, James tells us that the problem is not God. The problem is you. It's me. The problem is not even the circumstances in your life. It's not because things are going bad that you are sinning. It's because of your own heart. How can I say that? Look at the text. The problem is from within. It's all started inside. If you read in the Bible, the book of Jeremiah, you will find Jeremiah 17, verse 9 to 10. And maybe many of you who are Christian for more than one year know that passage. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So 
I don't know for you, but when I read the Bible, I like to read it and just take it as it is. So here the text tells us that the heart is deceitful. So the easy application of that is do not be deceived by it. It's simple. Your heart is deceitful. Be careful. Do not be deceived by it. It will lead you on the wrong path. Jesus said in Mark 7 verse 21, and he explained a little bit more, our evil comes from the inside. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And it's not an exhaustive list here. Jesus is just explaining that all the evil deeds that the man is doing comes from his heart. Take roots in his heart. That's from there. That's taking roots there. And after that, spreading into all kind of sin. So listen, if your own heart is wicked and produces desires that will lead you to sin and death, will you follow that heart? Will you put your trust in this heart? We need to understand that we are really our own worst enemy. I am my own worst enemy. And if we are not aware of that, we will fight against the wrong enemy. We need to be aware of that. So usually, tell me, if you know that someone is trying to kill you, and I hope you don't have that experience already, but if someone is trying to kill you and you know it, will you follow that person in the dark and small street somewhere? It's not wise. You may die. Your own heart wants to do that with you. It wants to lead you down the path of death. You will not follow this heart. If you want to overcome temptation in your heart, in your life, don't follow your heart. First, it wants to deceive you. It wants to make a bad thing look like it's good and satisfying. And then it makes you desire that thing. And it leads you to disobedience. And then it brings forth death. James is clear about how it works. But let's take a look at two words that are in this, uh, in this verse, verse 14. It says two words that are so important to understand how sin works in our life. It says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And what we see here in the text is a fishing metaphor. When he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And there's a guy named Tim Chalice. Maybe you know him. He said something very uh, helpful for my own life. When I read this, I was like, okay, I, I get the picture very clearly about how sin works in our life and how it lures and entices us to sin. He said this, quote, Your sinful desires give you a hunger. An appetite for something forbidden, something you think you need, something you think you can't be satisfied without. Then a circumstance comes along and acts like bait, like a lure. That circumstance dangles the opportunity before you and you are tempted to take a bite. But what you never seem to see is that buried in that bait is a sharp, nasty hook. First it lures you and then if you succumb to the temptation... It hooks you and drags you away. End of quotes. So sin is there and temptation is acting like a bait that is dangling before you. And you are tempted to take a bite, but you don't see that nasty hook. It looks so good, but it hides death. So verse 16 is so important, so key in that passage because it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived. Your heart is wicked and wants to lead you down this path of death. It may look good, but it's not. 
And for you, brothers and sisters, the debate may look different than for me. We are not all tempted with the same thing. For example, for me, I can assure you that I will never, ever be tempted to gluttony in a seafood all-you-can-eat buffet. Never. It won't happen. I don't eat that kind of thing. It will never happen. But I can be very tempted to much anger if, when I feel like I'm, I'm not in control of my life. And for you, it may be different. We need to be aware of where we are weak in our life so we can fight at the right place. So we need to keep watch where we are weak. Stay away from the dangerous hook. Honestly, if it's pornography for you, don't go on those websites where you know there's pictures on the sidebar that will lead you down the path of sin. If it's comparison, don't spend much time on Facebook. I know I'm hitting a, a sensible card right here. Facebook is not sin. I have a Facebook uh, account. But it may not be wise if you are always looking, my family, is my family better than this family? Is my life better than this life? Don't spend much time. It's not helpful for your heart. If you struggle with the, the praise of men, don't push yourself in the front. You understand the principle. You just need to look at your own heart and study it. And the, the Puritans are, are the, 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 the men that helped me so much with that because they were, uh, they were guys that were looking so much in their heart to see where they were uh, sinning and what are, were the weakest part of their life so they could fight against it. And we need to do that today. Or you, we will fall all the time if we don't know where to fight. Where are you weak? Don't trust your heart. Don't follow it where it wants to lead you. And you know, sometimes we're like, oh no, I, I'm, I'm done with it. I will just do the same thing that I'm, I used to do. Before I was falling when I did that, but now I'm strong enough. Don't trust your heart in that. Don't trust your heart. Know your enemy, even when it seems so good. There's a guy, uh, a singer, a rapper called Timothy Brindle. In his song called Let's Kill Sin, he said something very graphic but very true. And I want to leave it with you because it's been stuck in my mind since the very first time I heard it. He said, sin is like excrement covered in whipped cream. It looks sweet, but we've discovered its sick scheme. Listen, he said, it's lavish passion as attraction that are acting like they give satisfaction. It looks so good but you will leave with a bad taste in your mouth. That is far from satisfying. Sin is working exactly like that. Attracts you, but delivers something that will deceive you so much. The only possible issue of following your own heart is death, according to what James is saying. If we read verse 15 again, he says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So you see, when, when you let temptation become so strong and you bite the bait, it creates a kind of a baby of temptation that is sin. And when sin is growing, when it, it is fed, it's growing and it brings forth death. So what we understand here, if, if sin is nourished in your life, James says, it will bring forth death. So what do we need to do? We need to starve sin to death. <laughs> it's a death match between you and sin. What will you use to fight? What I found is that the most helpful, the most powerful weapon that we can find in the Bible is 
the Bible. It's the word of God. We, we need to, to understand. There's, a, there's a, a verse in the Bible that was so helpful for all my life to fight against sin. It's Psalm 119 verse 11. The psalmist is using that in his own life. And it's so powerful. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So powerful. How can I be able to not sin against God if you put this word in your heart? If you keep the word of God and you keep feeding your heart the word of God because it wants to, to feed on sin. It wants to feed on sin. So if you want to starve your evil heart, you need to feed it the word of God. So sin will not grow stronger and sin will not bring forth death. Romans 8.13 says that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. In other words, if by the Spirit you kill sin in your life, you will live. But when I read that the first time, I was like, what does that mean? How do I put to death sin in my life by the Spirit? Is it just prayer and calling the Holy Spirit saying, please kill sin in my life? And then you just live your life like, it can sound mystical. How, how can I put to death sin in my life the, the reality is that we are not able to do it on our own it's not just because we're doing the right thing that sin will be put to death in our life but we see in ephesians 6 verse 17 that we are called to take the sword of the spirit which is the word of god so if we understand that correctly that means we need to to feed ourselves on the word of god and put the sword of the spirit in his hand for him to work in our life and kill sin in our lives the Spirit of God works with the Word of God all the time. So if we are just putting so much of the Word of God in our life, that's how the Holy Spirit will put sin to death in our life. There's someone that told me one day, when you are angry at someone, when you want to, to sin and say so much bad things about that person, oh, he did that to me, she did that to me, she talks about this and that. He said, try, try to pray for that person. And after try to continue your, your kind of, of talking this way, I tell you, it doesn't work. <laughs> when you start praying for someone, you stop talking bad about that person. You begin to feel the same thing that God is feeling for those person and praying for them to, to change and to be filled with the love of God. One last thing about fighting sin is when you think about Jesus in the desert. Desert, desert, understand what I mean. Jesus, when he answered back to Satan... Satan was there tempting him. Every time the Lord answered him back, he's the Lord. He can have did end with Satan. But it's the Lord. And he answered back each time with the word of God. So tell me, if our Lord did that, do we think we have a better solution to fight sin than him? Remember that he is the only one who never wants sin. I think it's a working way of killing sin in our lives. So first, the first step to overcome temptation is to never trust your own heart. Feel it. Fill your heart with the word of God and starve it. Starve sin to death. In me, there's only weakness. So where should I find the strength to overcome temptation? The easy answer is outside of me. But let's look at verse 17 and 18. In 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. 17, he says, every good gift, 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. The first thing is to not trust our own heart. But the second thing to overcome temptation is to trust our God. Verse 16 is really connecting those two passages together. It's really connecting 13, 14, 15 with 17 and 18. Do not be deceived about the wickedness of your heart, but do not be deceived about the goodness of your God. Look at this verse. We see so much thing in this passage, so encouraging and so helping for us to fight sin in our life. First, yes, you trust God. You trust His promises. You trust the Word of God and everything that He said He will do. But you need to trust the character of God. That's one of the most powerful tool or powerful thing we can do to fight sin. Trust your God. The only result of trusting Him is receiving good and perfect gift. God is good. He is so good, so perfectly good. Not only is He good, but He is the good giver of all good. Not only some of the good things, but He is the giver of every good things. James says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. So everything you can call good in your life, according to the Bible, comes from God. That's amazing. Just that should blow our mind saying God is so awesome. And that is even in the midst of trials and suffering. Because so often we can begin to think God is not good because of our situation and circumstances. Where is God in all of that? Even in the midst of trials and suffering, it's not because our eyes doesn't see that God is good or we don't see his goodness in something that his goodness is not acting in doing something. I know that my brother Andrew Chia came here some weeks ago preaching about the first part of James 1. And we see in James 1 verse uh, 2 to, to, um, to 4 that even in the midst of trials of various kinds, Verse 3 and 4 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, produces something in the midst of trials and suffering. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So even when we don't see the goodness of God, God is still good and still producing something good out of it. God is so good. So why is it so difficult then to turn to Him when we go to trials, temptation, and suffering? The reason why is that we tend to disbelieve his goodness. We tend to believe that the temptation and sin in front of us will truly satisfy us and God will not. We do not believe fully that God is truly the one who satisfies us. So we run to something else to find our satisfaction. That's where sin comes from. It's a faith problem. It's a trust problem. So we need to trust God with all our heart. So after that, James gave us some ground to trust the goodness of God. And let's look at that text because it's so encouraging and so powerful. First, he says that God is the father of lights. Referring to the fact that God created lights, he's the creator of sun, stars, and the whole universe. Is he good? Tell me something. If you read the Bible once or twice or, or 13 times, is God good? God is perfectly satisfied in himself. 
in the Holy Trinity is in communion with himself, perfectly satisfied. He didn't need to create the world to be more satisfied. God did not create the world in order for him to be more glorious. He did not create the world because he was lacking something. And he said, let's create, let's create a, word and, a world and, and let's create human beings so I can look like a TV show. And God did not need us. He created this world for us to enjoy his presence and partake of his glory and partake of his goodness. He created this world out of abundance. Created this world for you and I to enjoy it. Is he good? Is he good? When we think about, uh, just about our five senses, to be honest, I don't know for you. Maybe it's my artistic side or I don't know. But when I think about the five senses, God could have created this word all gray and all the things stays the same thing. But when we think about our five senses, it's all given by God for us to enjoy life. He's given us, he's given us all the colors that our eyes enjoy. The light blue of a morning sky, the sweet yellow of a sunflower, the turquoise water in the Caribbean. He gave us all the flavors that your palate can taste. The sweet taste of chocolate, the sour lemon, the salty bacon slice. All for us to enjoy. That was my breakfast this morning. The odors you can smell, like the comforting odor of a campfire. Or our fresh laundry. I love fresh laundry. When it comes back from the dryer. All the lilac in the spring, all the others we can enjoy, the different textures you can touch, like wood with all its detail, fur with all its softness, the warm sunbeam on your skin during summer. Who doesn't like that? Have you ever thought of all the beautiful sounds we can hear? Honestly, from the sweet and relaxing sound of sea waves or the joyful sound of your child laughing. It's all gift from God, the rain falling on the window, the thunder rumbling over our head with power, all gift from God given to us to enjoy. What does that mean? When we think about the creation, it means joy. It means you can trust this God. Why? He doesn't want to lead you to temptation and sin. He wants to lead you to joy. Think about that. He created all of this for us to enjoy. The second thing, the second ground to trust is goodness. Verse 17, he is perfectly immutable. That means he does not change ever. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God will never change. Once again, that means trust him. Because God will not begin to give you temptation to sin all of a sudden. He will not begin to give you bad things all of a sudden. God will never change his heart toward his children ever. If God loves you, it will stay like that ever, forever. You have to trust this God. Knowing that God does not change, his attitude toward you believers will never change. And that means also something very crucial and important for many believers. His heart towards you will not change according to your failure and behaviors. So many right here in this place are struggling with that so much. Oh God, I sinned again. How can I come in your presence? I will not come and pray to God. He will not listen to me. Look at what I did. I need to do something to gain back his love. We don't say that. <laughs> we don't say that. But we act like that. 
You know, how hard it is to come back to the Lord in prayer when you didn't pray for so long. And you're like, oh, I need to do something. Maybe I need to read a little bit more or talk to my pastor or, or confess my sin. I don't know. But we have so much trouble, so much guiltiness. And the enemy loves that to push us down and keep us far from the Lord. The heart of God will not change toward you according to your fail- failure. He does not, listen, he does not love you because you're good. He does not love you because you do the right things. You believe that? I came back from a religion that believed that. God is not like that. He does not love you because of what you're doing. He loves you because he loves you. (laughs) He loves you because, not because you're good, but because he is. And why will he always open his arm to welcome you? That's the third ground for trusting his goodness. And that's because of the gospel. Verse 18, at the end says, at the beginning of verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And that's wonderful. He brought us forth. You've been born again by the word of truth. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been born again by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ today, because of his sacrifice on the cross, where he took your sin upon himself without asking you, Look at the text. He says, of his own will. It's just reaffirming the fact that it's not because you're good. It's not because you did the right choice or the right thing. It's only and only because God is good. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He made us to be born again to this newness of life by faith. So you want to see the goodness of God on display? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. And we need to be very, uh, to listen very carefully at this point. Maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's your first time hearing about Jesus or about the gospel or about sin and all of that. But you begin to understand that struggle. Maybe you don't know anything about him. Please listen at this point. Because we want to look at the cross. And I think that God wants to save lives in this place. Or maybe just reignite this fire of, of understanding. When you think about the day of your salvation, about who you were, what, what you did, about Christ coming to save you, if you're truly a Christian loving Christ, there's supposed to be something in your heart that is stirred up, saying, God, what an amazing grace that you saved me. If you want to see the goodness of God, we look at the cross. At the cross, you see the worst temptation of all time and the greatest demonstration of goodness of all time. Listen to this. Jesus has been tempted on the cross like no one else will ever be in the midst of the worst trial of all. He's been beaten, speeded on, betrayed, abandoned, nailed to a cross, and soon to receive the full punishment for our sin in receiving the Wrath of God that we sinners deserved. He, Jesus, the only just man to ever walk on earth, is about to receive the punishment for the sin of guilty men. And remember this. When you look at this event, remember that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. That means that All the time while he was on that cross, he could have said, that's enough. I'm getting down from that cross and I'm not dying for these people. They're not worthy. There's nothing found in man worthy to be saved. 
And you know what? It would have been just to do that. He can. He has all the power. He can get down from that cross and say, I'm not doing this. He can even get down from that cross and say, I'm just killing them all. Pfft, over with my enemies. They are spitting on me. I'm not doing this. But he stayed there. Jesus stayed there. And while he was standing on that cross, men continued to sin in such a way that they were tempting him. He can get down from that cross, but they are looking at him saying, if you are truly the son of God, get down from that cross and prove it. Can you imagine that? I'm sure any one of us hanging on a cross, having the power to get down, someone screamed out at us, we get down from that cross and we just finish with them. Jesus stayed on that cross. He was tempted in the worst trial of God, but he stayed there showing his perfect goodness. First, the perfect goodness inside of him. The fact that he's so pure, so perfect, that there was nothing inside of him evil to bite the bait that men were putting in front of him. But he was also giving the ultimate goodness ever given. He was dying on that cross to save sinners like you and me. Jesus stayed there. Remember that Jesus stayed there. So the thing we can understand when we look at that, that is so encouraging for us to fight and to push back sin in our life and temptation, is that through Jesus Christ, because of what he did on that cross, there's only one thing remains for us today, and that is goodness. Goodness through Jesus Christ, reconciliation with the Father, the love of God pouring out on us because of what Jesus did on that cross, being saved from the wrath of God, being brought into the kingdom of God, being saved and secure in heaven and being with Him forever because of His love and His sacrifice. Do you see the goodness of God here? Do you see the goodness of God? This morning, if you don't know Jesus, don't wait to come to Him. Don't wait till a, best, a better time. Don't wait till tomorrow. Come to Him today. He's waiting for you. Don't wait. Believing Him now. Jesus is worthy to abandon anything that can stand in the way of following Him. He is worthy. He is that kind of a great treasure for us. He's so precious. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only true life. Anything outside of Him is not life. It's just temporary pleasures that will bring just more pain and more sadness. But Christ is the ultimate treasure that is worthy to abandon anything else. I want to tell you like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 5.20. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Don't wait. Don't wait. Talk to someone in this church, maybe after the service, saying, I don't know what happened. I think God wants me to follow him. There's something going on in my heart. I never understood maybe the gospel before. Now I understand what he did for me on that cross. Can you pray for me? Ask someone. Pray with someone. Don't leave this place without praying. Maybe you are asking, why do I exist? It can be easily answered, biblically speaking. You've been created to enjoy and know Christ, to know Him and enjoy Him forever. He is that good. So, putting your faith 
in God today. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. And what is really amazing is that the end of verse 18, it doesn't end there. Yes, we have promises in Christ. Yes, we know that we are secure in him. But at the end of verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. First fruit of his creatures. And here it's referring, yes, to the fact that it doesn't end with us. It doesn't end with the first Christian that James was talking to. Like they were converted, they were believing in Christ, but James says there's more to come because through your testimony, more will hear and understand the faith that we need to have to be saved. More people will hear about Jesus through your testimony. More people in other world will hear about Jesus through your testimony. It doesn't end with us. Have you ever wondered why when we believe in Christ, we're not just brought in heaven? That's over. Life is so hard. Why are we staying in this planet for so long? The truth is that in 1 Peter, it says that it's because God wants to save more people. And there's more people that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And how will God do that? Through you people. Through you, church. You're still here because God wants to use you to spread the word. So it's not done with us. But it's also referring to the regeneration of all things. When it says the first fruit of his creation, we see in Romans 8 and many other passages in Revelation also that the great regeneration of all things is coming. God will create a new heaven and new earth. And our regeneration, the fact that we are saved through Christ is just the beginning of all that. That promises that one day there will be no more trials and no more temptation. Someone should say amen to that. That is so good. If you struggle with sin, for me, I'm just eager for that moment. Father, I'm just so eager for that moment when I will be in your presence, worshiping you fully, without any restraint whatsoever. You know, if you have kids, sometimes you snap. Or maybe I'm the only one that does that. What happened here? And then two minutes or maybe two seconds after you did it, you're like, oh, I'm such a bad dad. Why did I do that? Oh, the day when we will be free from all of that, being able to, to be like God planned to create us in the beginning, the first fruit. I want to end by reading a passage to you in Revelation chapter 21. It's just so encouraging. Chapter 21, Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. It's a revelation that Jesus gave to the Apostle John. And he's talking about the new heaven and new earth. And what a great promises we can see in here. What will be our future in heaven with God? It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just that. We can stop there and say, Amazing. That's what we want. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
tell me what brings pain and tears and death and crying and mourning. Sin. But there's nothing like that in heaven. Why? Because sin will be no more. We don't have to fear saying we will be in heaven with God. But what if I sin there? Will I be rejected from heaven? There will be no such thing. There will be no sin, no temptation, just enjoying the presence of God freely without any restraint. So when you listen to all of this, when you think about heaven and the promises of God, doesn't it give you a lot of strength to fight temptation in your life? Do not trust your heart. It will lead you to death. Trust your God. Trust your God. It's a delight of eternal goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you didn't leave us without anything, but you leave us with your word. Father, I pray that if there's only one thing that took place in this meeting, that many will discover such a powerful love for your word, that you will fill every one of our lives with the word of God so that we won't sin against you. So that reading you, we will understand more about your character and how good you are. That we will be amazed at your goodness, amazed at your faithfulness, amazed at your love. You loved us so much. You still do. And forever. Father, I pray that you will help many of my brothers and sisters to fight temptation and sin in the days and weeks to come. I pray that much glory will be given to you in all of this. And Father, I pray, I pray for salvation. I pray for salvation in this place right now. I pray that you will change hearts in this place. Bring people to the knowledge and delight in Christ Jesus that they never experimented before. Only you can do that. No man can do it, only you. Please change hearts. And Father, I pray that through this church here in Ottawa, through this Harvest Bible Chapel in Ottawa, that many will hear the testimony of God. Many will hear what Jesus did on that cross and you will save a great number of people, not for us to make a name for ourselves, not for us to glory in ourselves, not for Harvest to, to have a name for themselves, but for you to receive all the glory, not to us, not to us, Lord. Give the glory, but to your name. Please do this in this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.